are listening to You, Me, and an Album, Episode 83. I'm Al Melchior. He switches fingers, puts his ring finger on the E, and then it goes way down here. And then this kind of funky A, but he taps on and that and But yeah, it's it's not typical things you're gonna you're gonna hear on a radio friendly hit. That was Lenny DiNardo talking about the Lemonheads 1992 album It's a Shame About Ray. Lenny had a six-year major league career pitching for the Red Sox, A's, and Royals, and he's currently an analyst on Nesson's Red Sox broadcasts. Lenny is also a guitarist, and he's saying backing vocals on the Dropkick Murphys song, Tessie. So, Lenny, we are going to get to uh, all the the music side of of everything that you do. Um, There's just a lot of really cool stuff to talk about, but uh, I'm very glad that the Red Sox had the day off so that you were able to come here and join me for this episode. So, welcome to you, me, and an album. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I think this is an outstanding idea. I wanted to jump at the chance as soon as you reached out. And uh, I was talking to you before, and uh, I would gladly do this many times because there's just so much music out there that I love and love to kind of pass on to people that might not have had the chance to listen. So thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, my my pleasure. And I appreciate that too. We've had some folks actually come back a second or even in a couple of cases a third time uh so uh be, be careful what you wish for but uh <laughs> i i appreciate what, what you say about the podcast it's I, I it's always great to, to hear that and uh so we are gonna talk uh about uh, it's a shame about ray and you know the way that you just wound up uh there lenny saying that you know, you're, you're glad to come here and introduce people to an album that they might not have caught up on. Uh, obviously, that's the, the main theme of this podcast. But this is one of those albums that came out when I was in a very heavy radio listening period. I loved the title track. Um, I actually wasn't, I didn't remember that I actually knew a second song off this album, uh, Confetti, which I hadn't heard probably since like the mid 90s. Um, but yeah, it's one of those albums that at some point, I probably thought about buying it because I liked the radio song so much, but just just never did. So it's really perfect for uh, for me anyway. It's perfect for this show, and I imagine probably for for others as well. So uh, we all, I also want to get to something a little bit later on in the show because, as I mentioned, you play guitar. You've sang backing vocals on some some records. Uh, you have connections to a couple of people who have been on the show previously. And another musician who I interviewed in my work for the athletics. I'm really looking forward to talking about those connections uh, in a bit. But yeah, let's get right to uh, to the Lemonheads. And you had mentioned to me in an, in an email exchange that the first concert you went to was the Grateful Dead. And I think you said when you were when you were five. Yeah. So is are the Lemonheads? Uh, more of a departure from the kind of music that you listened to growing up, or is it really like right in your wheelhouse? Well, my my parents always had music playing in the house. We kind of lived in the woods, so to speak, and we would work outside in the garden, and we're, we're always doing things outside, and the windows will be open, the radio would be blasting, uh, whether it was vinyl, whether it was a CD after a little bit later on, but it, it was a very eclectic mix. Uh, my dad would, would kind of introduce us to, I mean, any anywhere from Louis Armstrong's Hot Fives, Hot Sevens, to Richard Thompson, to Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead. Uh, and my brother, my older brother, I should say, who's six years older than me, kind of was going in a certain direction. And I was very, very lucky to have kind of both of them as influences because my dad was kind of showing me that 60s stuff, the 50s stuff uh, into the 70s. And my my older brother was there to kind of introduce me to more of the 80s stuff, whether it was radio friendly stuff or even kind of obscure alternative stuff. You know, he went through a uh, like a big Duran Duran phase at one point, And then he was into like Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And then my dad one day, and I don't know why he did this, but I think he's trying to kind of sway him away from that hardcore metal stuff. He brought home an REM CD. And I uh, gave it to my brother, said, hey, just give this a listen. Let me know what you think. And uh, this is probably, gosh, it was probably late 80s, early 90s. And I can't remember what the album was. But, you know, what your older brother listens to, that's what, you know, your, the sibling, the younger sibling wants to listen to, too. Because obviously older brothers are awesome. They're, they're so much cooler <laughs> than you at the time, right? Uh, so, yeah, 
I was listening to what my dad was listening to, my mom, my older brother, and uh, I was taking it all in, right? Because you don't have a say when you're 10, 11 years old, like what, what's going to be playing on the radio. So I got this huge mix of music uh, and I just kind of picked my favorites and I've been doing that ever since. And uh, it just so happens that It's a Shame About Ray was, a, was one of my brother's uh, CDs laying around and I think he got it from one of his friends it was probably like a, a borrow, borrowed CD from one of his high school buddies and uh, let's see I was probably 11 12 at the time when it came out mm-hmm. and uh, I, I would listen to it because he was listening to it I just I gravitated towards it I thought the melodies were outstanding uh, Evan Dando's voice is, is is great it's it's an outstanding voice and uh you know, you can listen to some of the lyrics and, and some of it makes to me at the time and still to this day makes absolutely zero sense. But <laughs> some of it actually kind of is biogra- autobiographical in some sense. You kind of see him sitting down, say, you know, you know, riding on a train and uh, Hannah, uh, uh, Hannah and Gabby, for instance, kind of watching the, the scenery go by that, that kind of points to. Uh, more of one of the biographical songs and ceiling fan in my spoons another one to where it's like what after like i don't get what any of this means but it's a great song so actually well since you brought it up uh let's let's start with hannah and gabby because okay. um i was on uh, YouTube earlier today and just playing the album through uh, on YouTube. And occasionally I'll just glance at the comments and I looked at the very top and the first comment was, um, or, or actually, okay. So actually I'm thinking, I'm sorry. I'm th- actually thinking of the wrong song here. Um, okay. So that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> may, I want to hear yeah, it. I may need to cut <laughs> this out. I was thinking of kitchen, kitchen and, the, yeah. and I was going to, which was actually not written by Evan Dondo. That was written by Nick Dalton, who um, was a bass player in the band. He actually played bass on one song on It's a Shame About Ray, which is Mrs. Robinson. And uh, Mm -hmm. he's an Australian bass player. He's been at a bunch of uh, really cool behind the scenes alternative uh, Australian rock bands and uh he's a important figure for evan because he introduced him to uh not only a lot of the musical scene in australia but also tom morgan from smudge who co-wrote he's a writing partner with dando uh on a few of the songs on this album and a lot of the songs on the next album too uh, and i always look at smudge as kind of the australian limit heads because they're very similar similar uh uh, styles of music and and, and chord patterns and, and stuff like that. You always find at least one smudge song uh, on a Limitheads album too, from It's a Shame oh, Array nice. forward. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, because I looked at the writing credits and saw there there were a couple of co-writes there, and now I understand why and, and what the backstory is. But I'll go ahead and, and roll with the with my error here <laughs> and uh, talk a little bit about Kitchen because, as you said, written by by Nick Dalton. And so I, I was looking at the comments on YouTube. He had the first comment, and apparently I didn't see the the original thing he was responding to, but I guess somebody was accusing him of ripping off um, a. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the band uh, trying ripping off another song. Okay. And, um, he, you know, he was saying, yeah, I really, you know, admire their work, but, um, you know, no, this is all totally, you know, as original as any song is. He said, yeah, you know, some of the chord progressions are things that are, are, are in a whole bunch of songs, but I just thought what a cool thing that this guy pops up in the comments to address something that somebody said. And then he winds up having all these side conversations with other commenters. Uh, so that was just kind of a cool discovery. Yeah, I mean, that's that's Evan. I got to know him pretty well, uh, just kind of coincidentally. Uh, I was playing in the minor leagues with the Mets. I learned guitar, kind of a few chords here and there uh, in the minor leagues. And when I came over to the Red Sox, it was just like, all right, this is where all this music that I love was formed. The Pixies, the Lemonheads, the Blake Babies. I mean, even more popular radio uh, 
you know, uh, Boston, for example, you know, you, you love those riffs from the seventies. And, uh, when, when I was playing for the Red Sox after games, I would go over across the river to Cambridge and just basically go to these house parties, uh, where most of the people there were kind of in the orbit or musicians themselves. Uh, Bill Janovitz from Buffalo Tom was, and his brothers, Scott and Tom were, and, and Paul were frequently at these places. Um, uh, just a bunch of musicians, Julianna Hatfield, and I met Evan through kind of all these people. And, and one of these parties, I was actually sitting down and talking to him about music and he, he got this notebook pad and, and a pen and basically jotted down this full list of, of bands and albums that I absolutely need to know. And uh, it was like a, a music lesson for a, a 24, 25 year old kid. It was just like taking it all in. And I lost the pad somewhere over the last 20 years or so. But I remember, cause I went out and bought like every album on the, uh, on the list. And uh, the zombies were one of them. Wire, uh, the Eastern dark was another Australian band. Um, just, just this really, really cool list of songs and, and bands that I you know, didn't necessarily uh, not know of, but never really listened to. Kind of they're on, on the list and went right out and, uh, and, and bought a bunch of them. Big Star was another one. That's a, a very, very cool band. Uh, influential on a lot of people, including the Lemonheads and R.E.M. and a bunch of different bands. Yeah. yeah. That's going to say I always associate them with Mike Mills. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But it just goes back to, to Evan being super accessible and super uh, giving of his time and energy. And he wants to kind of pass on the stuff that influenced him as a youngster and still influenced uh, influences him to this day to kind of people that are interested in music and kind of dialed in. Um, so I, on your Wikipedia page, it mentions that you have played with Evan. Uh, so how did that come about? Uh I basically asked him because I've been playing this 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 gig called Hot uh, Hot Stove Cool Music for a while now. I want to say the first time I played was 2005, uh, and I've had the opportunity to play with with Juliana Hatfield. I played with Evan in 2000. I want to say 2010 or 11. We played a smudge song, "The Outdoor Type," which everybody associates with the Lemonheads, but it's actually a smudge song. Uh, and I played with Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, Bill Janovitz from Buffalo Tom. It's it's like a uh, rock and roll fantasy camp for me to get on stage and play with these, these, these groups and people. It's uh, and, and it's all for, I played with Johnny Resnick a couple months ago from the Goo Goo Dolls. Uh, I played a petty tune, but it's, it's giving back to the community, raising a ton of funds for people that need it. And, uh, and just having a great time doing it, playing music on stage. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, I asked him, I said, Hey, would you consider playing also cool music? And he was, he was up for it and he, played a bunch of limited songs and, and, uh, had a great time. And he, he asked me if I would play that. And, uh, it was just me and him on stage. It's on YouTube. If you, if anybody wants to see the clip, uh, so okay, I'm good. I will find it and put the link in the notes. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. Well, given that you have uh, a personal connection with Evan Dondo, uh, for a couple of ways uh, that you've already mentioned, uh, was there any competition it, when I reached out to you and, and asked you to come on the show and you picked an album, was there any second thought to doing any other band? Well, this wasn't the first album that came to mind. It was it was actually the third. The first two were by an artist uh, named Mark Kozilek. I don't know if you're familiar with Mark Kozilek. And his, yeah. his original band was called the Red House Painters. Oh, okay. And he's in a band called Sun Kill Moon now. So the two albums that I was I was originally thinking of doing um, it was a Sun Kill Moon album. Uh, Ghosts of the Great Highway was the one. It's got a, probably one of my favorite songs ever called Carry Me, Ohio. There's another one called Gentle Moon. This might be another day for me and you to kind of go over uh, this album because it's outstanding and the other one was another sun kill moon album uh called april uh really really cool albums very uh different chord changes a lot of open tuning kind of soft not uh well one of them's kind of softer the the other has some electric and some drums as well but very cool albums worth checking out in their own right Okay, but so you decided to go with uh, with the Lemonheads, and did you choose? It's a shame about Ray, just because it's the 
you know, kind of the, the flagship album, the most uh, popular album in the collection, or is it your actual favorite? Uh, I, I go back and forth. And I think that show, that kind of tells you what one of your favorite bands are. If you really can't choose a favorite album, it just depends on that week or that month, which you're listening to. Uh, Lovey, another album by the Lemonheads is another favorite of mine. Came out a year or two before this one. Come on, feel came out right after this is another really good one. I mean, they, they changed throughout the years from like 86, 87, all the way up until, uh, I mean, they've got it. Uh, it's really just Evan, but, uh, they call it the limit heads. He's got a couple albums the past few years, but car button, car button cloth came out. I want to say 96, 97, another great one. Every album is, is unique. And, uh, but so still has that Dondo, uh, fingerprint on it, uh, whether it's the lyrics or the melodies and whatnot. But I picked this one because a, it was, it was my introduction to the lemon heads. Uh, B it's the 30th anniversary this year, this past June that it came out. Uh, they put a reissue out with a bunch of extra cool little acoustic tracks and demos on it, which are worth listening to. Um, and it's the album that, that wanted, you know, that caused me to want to pick up the guitar to be all and, and to be honest, I, I didn't pick up the guitar as a kid. I picked it up in my early twenties, uh, specifically because I wanted to play Hannah and Gabby, that little riff at the beginning and those chords. I was, I, I need to learn how to play this song. And uh, my older brother helped me kind of figure out those chords. And then later on, Evan said, here, you know, here's the correct way to play this song. Check it out. And, and uh, it's great. I actually played it with Juliana Hatfield at a, a Hot Stove Pool Music, probably 2005 or six, with uh, a guy named Joe Keefe, who's from the Vineyard on vocals. Uh, he was in a band called Unbusted. And he's in another band called Family of the Year now, which are, are some bands you should check out. Okay. Did Skunk Baxter show up though? He did not. He did not. Yeah. Yeah. He, For those uh, not familiar, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's that's an interesting story because I know Evan was originally looking for Sneaky Pete, and I believe the, the last name is pronounced Kleinow, Sneaky Pete Kleinow, who was in the Burrito Brothers, who he loves, right? Grant Parsons band and, and all that. There's a big influence there. He's kind of looking for him to do the pedal steel, but uh uh Baxter was with the Doobie Brothers, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. And according to Evan, apparently when, when he was recording the track, he had a gun apparently like sitting right next to him while he was recording it. Basically just kind of this guy like, you're just going to say, all right, that was perfect track. One take, we're good to go, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it was, it's a great, it's a great little addition. It's kind of different to hear that pedal steel. But yeah, the uh, the chords in that song are, are very, very unique and different. And uh, I, I want to say, and I'm not very technically proficient at guitar and I don't know theory or anything like that. But I'm, I talked to Chris Brokaw, who was a touring member of the Limit Heads not too long ago. Actually, during COVID, he gave me an online guitar lesson. Wow. And uh, I was talking to him about these different chords because he toured with the Limit Heads. And he says Evan was really big into Mission of Burma, which is another boston band who use these kind of triads these different little chords and uh he learned a lot and kind of took some of those while uh writing lemonhead songs so and one of those is the uh i mean i might as well i've got a guitar here yeah i mean oh the little yeah, slide he starts right right here and kind of goes down that little slide i always love it That little thing right there was that opening lick to that song was just it drew me in and i was like i gotta learn how to play that <laughs> well it was really interesting to me that you said that this was the album that really inspired you to to take up guitar because i i have a guitar um it's behind me you probably can't see it um i haven't played it much in the last year and a half and i'm not you know not particularly good uh or practiced at it but listen to this album I did something I haven't done probably a year and a half, which was I looked up some tabs uh, because I'm just like, oh, these chord progressions are just so gorgeous. And 
it it seems like something I could probably play. And yes, the ones I looked up were not, you know, they were chords I knew. Um, so it's, yeah, it, 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 you know, I'm taking drum lessons now and I'm, so I'm paying a lot of attention to the drumming too. And again, most of the songs it's, it's pretty basic, but, um, or at least I should say it seems that way. I'm sure once I try to play it, I'll have a lot of problem with it, but that, that's um, a, that's a thing though. It's, it's basic yeah. chords, but they're different. They're not typical chords you're going to hear on the radio. Um, like he'll, you know, G A D, but he'll play them in a fashion where, you know, instead of playing like on drug buddy, for instance, he goes from, uh, like this, this B minor at certain, at one point, and it goes to a G, but instead of playing the G just with like these two, he'll like add way down the neck. Cause he's got these banana hands. It'll go. And then later, like the next phrase, he'll put it down to the E like, so he goes like, that little or at the end of it so rather than just playing an actual g he adds these little these little eccentricities to the chords and he does that a lot on a, on a bunch of different songs i don't know if he does it just to do it or to frustrate people trying to play these songs but <laughs> <laughs> like I, I would i would i would hear something i'm like that's not a typical chord it's kind of different and you know if i went to a lemonhead show I found myself preoccupied, like looking at his his left hand, like what is he doing during this part of the song, and it's it's kind of different. So, is that the reason why you were drawn to to play guitar and learn these songs, just because of the you know unique nature of the way that these chords sound, or was was it something else? I found that out later, and I was I was frustrated to be honest because I like I, I was gravitated because I love the melodies; they they flow really well. But then I found out, like, okay, this is going to be a little bit more difficult than I thought. <laughs> uh, and YouTube's great now because, you know, yeah. before YouTube, I don't know how people did it, to be honest, like figuring out these different songs and playing these weird chords. I wouldn't have had a shot, to be honest. But now that YouTube's here, you can kind of scour the Internet and say, OK, that's what he's doing with his ring finger right there on this separate chord, which makes, which makes it sound a little bit different, a little bit cooler uh, than it would have if he did. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, Thank goodness for, for YouTube, or I wouldn't have had a shot. <laughs> yeah, and I've been doing the, the same thing with some uh, songs I'm trying to figure out on drums. So I don't know what people did before YouTube. I guess they just they just listened and <laughs> tried to figure it out. They were extremely talented, extremely talented yeah. back then. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, so you've already talked about some of the aspects and elements of this album uh, that are really special. Um and, and I agree with you and I would have agreed with you even before listening to the whole album, just, um, Evan Dondo's voices. It's, it's hard for me to categorize, but there, you know, it's like, it's laid back, but he has just so much character, um, and the melodies, uh, but are, what else is it about this album that just makes it a, a special one for you? Uh, for me, it's, it's, it's really short. It, it hovers around 30 minutes and, uh, and it, it, the whole album almost seems like a complete song to me at 30 minutes. Uh, and, and I know this because like when I go to work, I drive to Boston, it's an hour 45, two hour drive. And I typically have my music playing on random. And if I, if a Lemonhead songs from this album comes up uh, and then it randomly goes to another song, different band, different, you know, whatever, it just feels off a little bit to me. I feel like this is one of those albums where it's got to go from start to finish for it to actually get that full feeling. Um, yeah. So from, from rock and stroll, if it doesn't go right into confetti, something's wrong. You know, it just kind of feels weird, you know? Uh, and it's such a short album. You can, you can go to the store, pick up some milk and then finish the second half of the album on the way home. You know? So it's, it's not a, it's not the grateful dad by any means, as far as jam band and, and putting length with the songs. I mean, I think it's like, an hour or a minute 48 is the shortest maybe. And the, and the other, the longest is probably just a little over three minutes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was something that impressed me right away. Uh, I wrote this down. Yeah. About rock and stroll. That's the minute 48 one. And I, I, I wrote sets the tone for the entire album. Cause it's just a quick snappy song that leads right into, like I said, into confetti, another very quick to the point, uh, infectious pop song. That, that song rock and stroll, uh, I've, I've always kind of loved it, but we were talking earlier that now that I have kids and, and uh, 
we're always pushing them around in a stroller. So if you listen to those lyrics, it's, it's so relevant to what they're going through as, as kids inside the stroller. So if you look at those lyrics, I don't have them in front of me, but you know, it's, it's, uh, this here friends is all I know. I won't go something, something until I grow. And it's, it's showing a, like a three-year-old perspective or younger of what they're seeing tree trunks and people's knees and smile at me. It's all, <laughs> it's all from the perspective of a youngster riding in a stroller or they call it a pram, I guess. That's some of the Australian <laughs> influence right there. This here pram is all I've known. I won't be walking till I've grown. All I've been shown is everything I want to see. People's knees and trunks trees. Smile at me. So, and you can see my wife has some some world records up here from Guinness Book of World Records, actually pushing a stroller in races, like 10Ks, half marathons and whatnot. So, oh, wow. Like they're all, they, my four kids were always in strollers. They grew up in a stroller running races with her. So rock and stroll uh, is really pertinent to us and, and our family. Yeah. And no, I could, uh, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely uh, strikes home. Uh, <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, be interesting to see if they grow up to be distance runners. I, my my nine year old's already. I ran a five k with her yesterday, and I haven't run a five k in over a year, so I'm sore today. But she loves running. She's getting into it. All my others are doing something with with a ball typically at this point. But who knows where they're going to gravitate towards in the future? <laughs> we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Uh, so, do you have any? I, I hesitate to ask this question. I actually haven't asked it in several episodes, but uh, I was going to say, do you have a particular favorite? But it's sort of like what you were saying before about a favorite band that the, the favorite album probably changes a lot. So is that the case with this album that on one day, one track might be a favorite and on the next day it's another? Or are there certain just go-to tracks that you might even just go straight to? Yeah, yeah. Uh... I mean, I like every song on the album. Hannah and Gabby's probably my favorite. We talked about that one, but the title track, It's a Shame About Ray, is a really cool song. I like that a lot. I like the chords. It's a shame about Ray. In the stone of earth, the dust is named The lyrics are kind of one of those songs where could mean something but it possibly means nothing just because mm -hmm. you know back in the early 90s they were kind of in their uh early 20s and who knows what what they were doing back then when they wrote it uh so i think a lot of it could just be nonsensical but uh the story is when he wrote it's a shame about ray the title track they tom morgan from smudge and evan were in australia and he just read an article or saw a newspaper headline and that was the article about this kid that kept getting kicked out of school and whatnot and uh, that's what a, a nun from his school said in the article. It's a shame about Ray. So they just kind of took that and then wrote the rest of the song in about 20, 30 minutes, which uh, which is amazing to me that she could put together words, music, chords, verse, chorus, verses, choruses, bridges and everything just in, in that short amount of time and have a, a track so cool. And and uh, I guess when 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 it strikes you know, it strikes and you, you, you just hope you have pen and paper in hand when it does. Uh, but they wrote that one and they wrote rock and stroll and confetti the same morning, I guess. So they were very, wow. they were feeling pretty, uh, pretty, uh, I don't know. They were feeling good about writing this album at that point. So who knows how, how long it took to get the rest of the songs out. Yeah. They were having a good day. Yes, uh, they were. Day. But, you know, when you were talking about uh, the, the lyrics of It's a Shame About Ray, and I had read that same anecdote about um, Evandato getting that from a, a news story. And something that occurred to me in listening to the, the album, uh, and listen, really focusing on the lyrics, is that on several of the songs, there's just a phrase that gets repeated over and over. Not, and not just like in the chorus, like it might be in the bridge too. And Confetti was one that struck me. There's basically two blocks of, of lyrics and they just get repeated over. There's a, a verse that just gets repeated twice. And then there's the, he kind of should have sort of would have loved her uh, if he could have. That gets repeated. Uh, I think I counted eight times. Yeah. Twice in the chorus times four. <laughs> and that that's the song. That's it. He kind of should have sort of would have loved her if he could have. The story's getting closer to the end. He kind of should have sort of. He'd rather be alone than pretend. 
like I said, it's a song I've heard on the radio many times and I just enjoy it because it's just so catchy and, and that, you know, he kind of should have started like, that's just, it's, it's hard not to get hooked into that line just because of the, the flow and the phrasing. Uh, but then really paying attention to the structure of the song there, there's not much to it in terms of lyrics. And yeah, I noticed that on some other tracks and I, I think it's just so effective. Like rudderless is another one like that. Yes. He goes ship without a rudder is like a ship without a rudder. I don't know how many times, right. But it's toward the end of the song ship without a rudder. And then the end, you know, that's it. Yeah, he does that. But, you know, a lot of times that would kind of get under my skin. Someone just repeating the same line over and over and over and over again. But I feel like he does it in a way that's not, uh, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me. Uh, I think it might be because of the melodies are so catchy and, and, and whatnot. It's very, like you said, it's a very simple format as far as writing a song. Uh, and they're short. They're kind of to the point. Some make more sense than, than others. Uh, but if you, if you talk to any musician about writing a song, they have their own personal feelings about what a song uh, means to them. And they sometimes they don't really want to divulge what it means to them because it kind of takes away what the audience, the thousands of people that are listening to it, it might take away from what the song means to them. I think REM's a band like that. They don't, they don't necessarily like to, uh, to tell everybody what each song completely means to them or what they were thinking when they were writing it. Cause it, you know, it would take away from, cause everybody's uh, thinking in a different spot. That, that's listening to it. So it could mean something important to them at that time. Yeah. Well, and this is something actually I, I talk about quite a bit with REM is that on the first two or three albums, often there weren't really lyrics. There were just syllables. Yeah. And I, that's the thing I, I love about REM because Michael Stipe's voice is, it's just an instrument making sounds that really go very well with all the other sounds. Uh, so and I, I say on a lot of different episodes, and so I guess I'm going to say it again. I'm not really much of a lyrics person. I almost always focus on the music first. So the fact that lyrics might not make sense or may not even necessarily be real words is not usually an impediment to me sure. enjoying the music. I completely agree. I'm the same way. You know, I would I would be singing songs in my head, at least, that uh, that were the wrong words for years. You know, like, oh, that's what he said. <laughs> again, thanks to the Internet to... to to screwing that up because I've been saying the same thing for for singing the same song in my head for 10 years and I've been singing it wrong but now <laughs> it's too late to, <laughs> to change it right but but yeah I mean I I as many times I've listened to this album I don't know if I could recite a whole song lyrics wise uh I could play a few of the songs but I don't I don't know if I could sing it if I could sing but I don't think I could remember the lyrics if I if I could sing to be honest just because the melodies I generate I, go, I gravitate, I should say, toward the, the melodies way more than lyrics themselves. Yeah. Um, and so like what we're talking about with confetti, uh, I, I, I'm with you that that pattern of just having a couple of blocks of lyrics and just repeating them over and over, that probably has annoyed me on other songs. I could definitely imagine that it would. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the secret sauce is that uh, Evan Dondo can, can get away with that. Uh, but I think it just kind of speaks to what you were saying that for however many times I've heard the the hit songs uh, by the Lemonheads on the radio, I never really paid that much attention to the lyrics and it, it's never stopped me from enjoying them. Yeah, I think partially because partially because he's got a great voice. He really does. You know, it, it's uh, it's pretty easy listening to his, his voice. He does, he's not really harsh on on either end, high or low. Uh, and it's almost, uh, if you listen to some of his live stuff, it almost sounds like he, he, he's got this natural, like double backing, you know, a lot of, a lot of musicians, when they record albums, they'll record their voice and they'll record it again, just, just mm -hmm. to kind of get it a little bolder. And he's got that natural, you know, I don't know where it comes from, maybe the diaphragm, but he, uh, he's, he's got the ability to kind of really project and hit the notes. So he's not doubling his vocals? He might be on the album, but I know when I oh. listen to him live, it sounds just like the album a lot of times. So, uh, Wild. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's gifted vocally for sure. 
and as you get older, your vocals change. Uh, many different singers, you can hear a, a difference between early on and later on. But uh, that's one thing that, that, that I feel like he's, he's kept, uh, kept up with pretty well, is kind of keeping that, 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 that great voice. That that is impressive because the I was listening really closely to see if the the vocals were doubled because it it really sounds like they are and, and they, they, and they, they could I, be they could they be. probably are yeah yeah I know a but, lot of bands do it but uh, I mean I've been to shows where I've I've listened to the vocals I'm like it just doesn't sound quite the same it just doesn't have that booming it's not the same key it sounds like different key but I feel like he you know on a good night you can actually hear wow, that sounds just like the album vocally. Yeah, well, that's really cool. Um, so I, I want to ask you about a song that's actually was was not on the original release of the album, uh, and that's the, the cover of Mrs. Robinson. Uh, because that that's like, I've always enjoyed hearing Evan Dondo's vocals. I'm still not sure, and I've heard this cover a lot of times. I'm still not sure if I like it or not. Uh, because like when I was listening to it just earlier today, I feel like his very laid back vocal style maybe isn't a great match for the song or maybe the, at least the way that it's arranged there. I don't know, but, but then again, I just love his voice so much that if it doesn't fit, maybe it's still okay. But do you have any, any sort of opinions about that? Uh, I think he might actually agree with you. Um, That was um, kind of, that song was kind of thrown together late, you know, it wasn't on the original, like you said, I think it was put together because of the, an anniversary of the graduate and that, that song was going to be on the, the album, uh, the soundtrack for that, that release. Um, and that's the only, uh, album on the, on the only song on the album with, uh, with Nick Dalton, we talked about earlier, uh, on bass, the rest of the, the bass is played by Juliana Hatfield from the Blake babies and, and whatnot. So, um, I feel like, the fact that it was a radio hit and uh, and all of that stuff behind that, he wasn't a real big fan of it, to be honest. You know, it wasn't his his he didn't pin the song and it was kind of thrown together. It's a it's a pop hit. And I don't think he uh, really appreciated it as much as a lot of the people listening on the radio that knew the song and recognized it from Simon and Garfunkel did so. Uh and he doesn't really play it live. I think he's going to, or he has now because of the anniversary of the album, but uh, up to, you know, the past couple of years, I don't think he's played it much live at all. So I don't think he's very proud yeah. of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I was, it's hard for me to separate out kind of whatever baggage I bring to it with the expectation of having heard the original so many more times than, than his cover, but just, my impression of listening to it earlier today was it, it, the vocals sound a little phoned in and I don't know. Yeah. Based on what you're telling me, maybe there was something to that. Or again, maybe it's just the contrast of kind of the lack of dynamics in his vocals, which again, I mean, you know, compared to a lot of rock singers, there's, there's a lot of character, but not necessarily a lot of, you know, dynamics with volume. But, um, but I, I actually, I, I love the song and I spent at the end um, with the, with the drums, uh, to me sounds very much like Stuart Copeland. Okay. And yeah. I'm just always, always blown away by how many drummers are influenced by Stuart Copeland. And sure. that just seemed like a, an, almost like a nod. Uh, but uh, so yeah, musically the song's really cool. I'm just and the baseline, the, the, the baseline at the end yeah. is pretty catchy. Right. At the end, you know, it kind of keeps some of the familiarity of the uh, original, which just makes it rock a little bit more. Like I said, that's Nick Dalton, a uh, great bass player. He toured with the Lemonheads. He was on the next album, Come On Feel, uh, I think for mm-hmm. all of those songs. Um, but yeah, a- another another cover on the album that I didn't even realize was a cover until not too long ago was Frank Mills. I don't know mm-hmm. if, if you realize that was a cover from the musical Hair. I met a boy called Frank Mills on September 12th right here. Unfortunately, I lost his address. I didn't know what it was from, and I, I probably should have looked harder into it. I just saw that the you know I didn't recognize the the people getting the writing credits, 
So yeah. I knew it was from something else, but I didn't. How so random that, is that? How random is that to put that at you know toward the end of uh, of your rock album? You know, just an acoustic version from the mu- from a musical from <laughs> from way yeah. back when. Really random, but he he totally pulls that one off. Oh yeah, yeah, he plays that yeah. one live too. He will pull that out every now and then, put it on the set list, and play it. And uh, I think it's a great tune. It really is. He makes it his own. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, I never would have guessed it was from Hair, but it just is his performance on that is fantastic. Uh, very cool. Well, uh, anything about the album in terms of tracks we haven't discussed or things that you enjoy about it that we haven't hit upon yet? Yeah, uh, another track that, that I really like, and we talked about my favorites on the album. There's so many, but the Turnpike Down is a really cool one. Um, and again, it's really simple lyrically lyrically um but a lot of the chords are just kind of different it's a really cool you know progression if you don't mind to bring the guitar out again but <laughs> bring it on yeah. it's a different like you know he this is a chord you don't really see very often it's basically the e and the a on the third fret and then the b on the third fret way not right on here it's uh to a g and then the, he switches fingers puts his ring finger on the e and then goes way down here And then this kind of funky A, but he taps on and that and that. But yeah, it's it's not typical things you're gonna you're gonna hear on a radio friendly hit. Uh, and again, that's I wanted to learn the album. I didn't know that there were strange chords involved, and but I appreciated it that much more learning these songs because of the little eccentricities of the chords and whatnot. So it was kind of frustrating at first, but then afterwards, I'm like, I really appreciated these kind of just uh, these oddball chords and progressions that he threw in. So that's another favorite of mine. I'm lost in Bit part, bit parts are cool, and that's Juliana Hatfield at the beginning, screaming her mm-hmm. lungs off. And uh, and if you know her, she's pretty soft spoken. She's extremely soft spoken. She's got this little voice. She can sing really well, but uh, at the beginning, talking or she's saying, "I want a bit part in your life." She screams it over and over again, two or three times. kind of funny listening to her scream scream that way because if, if you know her she's very very uh soft-spoken so well yeah and, and i don't i'm a l- little familiar with her her solo material yeah. but um and, and and speaking of which the with the the recent passing of uh, olivia newton john gave me reason to check out her covers and they're they're fantastic yeah um but um yeah on the rest of the album i mean she she makes these fantastic contributions as a, as a backing vocalist too and yeah, it's always very subtle, right? So I, I did have a moment of thinking like, that's got to be her, but it doesn't yeah. sound like her on the rest of the album. There's these little, you can hear little things like you were saying, like during It's a Shame About Ray, there's a line where she, she just kind of puts in this little phrase, Shorty Shay, right? That's her right there. Something needs to go. Is he like a mobster or something? Short was Shorty Shay, like this random mobster they put in. It probably rhymed, and then she just threw it in there, and it just stayed. I don't know, to be honest. Well, you you want to talk about misheard lyrics? I well, I didn't know. I didn't know what she was singing there, but I definitely didn't know it was Shorty Shay. Yeah, so. I believe I believe it's Shorty Shay. I'll have to go back and, and to to know one hundred percent, but worth a Google. But. I love that. Yeah, because it is. It's just this little unexpected thing that she does once and doesn't do it again. That's it. And it's like this little, you know, Easter egg that you kind of wait for it to happen. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because that reminded me of something else that I thought was super cool. Allison's starting to happen, which which is early on here, one of my favorite tracks on the album. And there's a bridge with like some kind of percussion that initially I thought maybe was cowbell, but then I listened closer and it definitely wasn't, wasn't that. (laughs) 
And there's a Slater Kinney song called Heart Factory where Janet Weiss is uh, playing on a radiator. And it sounds exactly like that. But I, I, I don't know if that's what what that percussion was, but it was, you know, it sounded really cool, but I, I couldn't quite pin down exactly what it was. I'm not sure, but I mean, that's probably a really good guess. A radiator. Yeah. yeah up in, up in new England, <laughs> they're, they're, they're frequently around every room you walk into. That's a, that's a good call. And that song, uh, Alice and starting to happen is actually about Alison Galloway. I'm not sure if you familiar, you're familiar with her. Mm-mm. She's the drummer in Tom Morgan's band smudge. So oh, okay. that's another connection uh with with australia with tom smudge and whatnot and uh there's a uh i had the vhs but i believe it's on dvd now it's the Lemonheads two weeks in australia and he plays a lot of these songs acoustically while touring around showing uh viewers different parts of australia and, and writing and stuff like that and he kind of explains the story of of how that song was written and why it was written about about alice and galloway yeah Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, you can pick those up at flea markets. I'm not sure if they're out there, if it's, <laughs> if it's still in print or not. But yeah, Lemonheads Heads, two weeks in Australia. It's worth checking out. Okay. I'll see what I can find and maybe I'll have something to share uh, in the notes for that as well. Uh, very, very cool. So, uh, well, I, I love this album. I wasn't really surprised when you picked it. I thought, okay, this is an album, like I said, pretty sure I'd thought about buying back in the nineties and just never, never did. Um, I've got a lot of albums like that. I just was very, I was in grad school and probably just not trying to spend too much money on, on CDs and, uh, but so I'm glad I finally very belatedly 30 years later, uh, get to, uh, get to explore this album and and if you if you're if you're a viewer and you're getting into this album there's i think four albums before this and a few maybe three or four five after this is Mm -hmm. kind of the sweet spot i feel like but the ones directly before and directly after are really good in their own merit we talked a little bit about evan's voice and it's progressed into the sweet spot into this album uh from more of kind of Husker Du replacement stuff early on, really, really hardcore kind of punk sounding stuff from their first album uh, to, you know, mixing in a few softer ones in the next one and a few more in the next one. But uh, he, he would scream with the best of them in the, in the first couple albums. So he, he kind of found his voice right around, right before this and right after this and during this recording, I feel like. And I, I sort of regret that I didn't take time and I obviously can still do this, uh, to go back and explore some of, especially the earlier ones, because I had read that very much that same description of the first couple of albums. And I really wanted to hear the contrast. And it was just one of those weeks where sometimes I have uh, a little bit more time to kind of go off the path and explore yeah. some things and haven't done that yet. But, and I believe uh, one of the reasons early on, you know, he was he had writing different writing partners and different people in the band kind of. You know, he would play one of his songs, the band would play it, and he would go back behind the drums while another member who penned that song would sing and play that one. And they're completely different styles. Um, so, you know, whatever song he wrote, he would kind of play guitar and sing and whatnot and uh, and go from there. And he's been the only constant Lemonheads member throughout the existence of the Lemonheads. So that's probably another reason why by the time we got to It's a Shame About Ray, uh, most of the songs kind of are in that familiar vein rather than, you know, here's a really hard punk rocking one. And then here's a kind of a softer one because there's different members uh, contributing a lot more to the songwriting process back then. Mm -hmm. So was he more inclined towards the, the more pop oriented songs, even on the early albums then? Yeah. There's a couple uh, clang bang clang, which is, rocking but you can still kind of hear that pop element to it as well like i feel like it's very very catchy it's it's punkish but it's very catchy at the same time There's a couple songs, uh, one called Mallow Cup, which is an outstanding tune, one of my favorites. 
and another one called A Circle of One. And those are, they could have probably very easily have fit on this album or the album right before this. But they were, I think they were on maybe two or three albums before this one. But you can kind of see him coming into his own uh, writing-wise uh, at that point. Okay. Well, yeah, now I have a little more incentive to really go back. And I, I just, I love drawing those through lines and kind of seeing the progressions. It's a, it's a fun way to follow a band. Yeah. Uh, so, well, I want to get to some of the other things that I, I hinted at at the, the very beginning. Uh, again, you yourself, it's, well, yeah, as you have demonstrated for us, you are a musician. Uh, you've uh, played on a, a number of, uh, of, of albums. And um, so, well, one thing though, you, you had mentioned in our email exchanges, it sounds like you've got a really interesting story about the upcoming baseball project album. And uh, somewhere if you can tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was at a spring training game when I was still living in Florida, probably 2014 or 15 and a mutual friend of mine and the baseball project, Steve, Wynn, Mike Mills, Linda Pittman, Scott McCoy, uh, a mutual friend of ours kind of hooked us up, said, Hey, do you guys want to go watch a baseball game together? Of course. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I'm a huge REM fan and, uh, we're sitting there and, uh, and I think it was Steve at the time kind of brought up, uh, how pitchers doctor baseballs to get them to move a little bit. And they, they, they hinted that they really didn't know much about how they did that, why they did it. So I was talking to Mike and Steve and, and, uh, I told them exactly what pitchers do, what they use, where they put it, why they put it in these different spots, uh, what scenarios you're going to, you know, use some stuff. And back then, before umpires were checking hands and belts and whatnot, I'd say 90% of pitchers had something on them just to help them control the baseball, not necessarily to uh, to make the ball move any differently, but just to get a grip on the ball. Because certain parts of the country, during the beginning parts of the season, the ball literally feels like a, you're throwing a brim back in the water. It's very slippery. You're, you have not much control on where it's going. So, Pitchers will will grab some pine tar to mix with the rosin that's on the back of the mound just to kind of get a little extra grip so you're not aiming at people's heads on accident. Uh, so I, I basically told them all this stuff. And then the next day, we went to go watch one of their shows. And Mike says, well, I wrote a song about everything you told us uh, yesterday at the game. And uh, I think it was just about complete, music, lyric-wise. And it's called Stuff which is the stuff you put on a baseball. And uh, I've heard the song and it's a, a lot of it's word for word of, of what I was telling them. And uh, it's going to be, they've already recorded it. It's going to be on their new album. I'm not sure exactly what the date is, but I'm looking forward to kind of hearing it. Uh, I've heard snippets uh, from the album version, but I've heard it live on YouTube. They've played it out a few times uh, since then as well. So very exciting. The baseball project's great. It's all, this will be their fourth album. They play all songs about baseball. Uh, really, really cool band. Yeah, no, they're, they're cool. And obviously when you've got uh, the, the people involved uh, <laughs> that are in that band, you know, it's going to be good. I, um, I had Steve went on the show several months back. Actually, it was during the, the world series last fall. And um, he told me something that I just, I think about all the time I thought was so interesting because he talked about wanting to be a sports writer growing up and I asked him something along the lines of, you know, well, why the shift of music or when or how did that happen? And basically he said in the baseball project, he's, he's getting the best of both worlds. He thinks of himself as a sports writer, but he's just doing it through music. And that just gets me to hear the baseball project very differently now than, than I had previously. Cause it's, yeah, it makes sense what he's saying and that he's they're they're telling stories about baseball uh but just doing to music yeah and it's I, I found this to be pretty interesting that a lot of musicians when they were growing up wanted to be ball players and a lot of ball players growing up wanted to be musicians i mean i'm a classic <laughs> example i would have if i had the talent to be a touring musician that would be my my absolute i would just love to do it right i mean it, it would be my dream come true if I could do that, if I had the talent and the capability. I don't. But, um, Mike Mills played ball when he was a kid, and he said he had aspirations of, of going all the way with it. Steve wanted to be a sports writer. Um, I, I talked to Eddie Vetter about this, too, and he was a huge Cub, Cubs fan growing up and, and always brings a glove on the road, wants to play catch and whatnot. Uh, Evan Dando, his favorite ball player growing up, uh, was Fred Lynn. 
So he just, you know, there's always this music baseball connection. I've heard it uh, so many times, so many times. So it, it's pretty cool to actually see this incarnation of a band playing rock and music, talking about baseball and, uh, and kind of bringing it all together. My favorite baseball project song is Pasquale on the Perimeter. Uh, Pasquale Perez was pitching for the Braves and could not get off the interstate. I can't remember what the interstate is, 85, 285, whatever it is. He kept going. He was late to his start because he couldn't figure out how to get off the interstate. He's just circling the, the stadium when he's with the Braves. So. Well, that's what they're so great for is just, yeah, you know, finding these odd moments, you know, making it into music. It's, it's fantastic. So, yeah, I can't wait for their new album. Uh, and maybe it'll be another opportunity to get one of them on here. That would be awesome. Uh, well, you know, while I'm uh, dropping some names here, I'm really wanting to ask you about another uh, experience that you've had playing with, with some other musicians. Uh, not on this show, but back in 2020, during the, the pandemic shutdown of Major League Baseball, we were still doing podcasts at The Athletic, and so we were obviously at times really kind of looking for different things to do since there was no real baseball to talk about. And we were very fortunate to get Lee Sklar on an episode, and we asked him all about you know playing with Bernie Williams, and, and we asked him about Bronson Arroyo, and uh, I didn't realize this until the other day, but that's an album that you played on. So how did that come about? Yeah, you know, were you in the studio with with Lee and Russ Kunkel and, and guys like that, or, or what was that all about? I, I wouldn't actually say play. We, uh, me, I want to say it was me, Damon, and Euclid at the time went into the studio with Bronson, and during his song "Dirty Water," we did this little introduction thing. We were just kind of throwing banter back and forth, talking about you know Red Sox and baseball, and it was just basically me, Damon, Bronson, and Euc kind of just going back and forth, uh, talking, and, and they use that as the intro to the song Dirty Water. Uh, but I, I didn't play guitar. I did play guitar on Peter Gammon's album that came out probably 2006. Mm -hmm. I played on one of those tracks uh, and sang backup on, on Tessie with the, for the Dropkick Murphys, which they play during, uh, after Red Sox wins. super proud of that they and i had no idea at the time when they when they came in the clubhouse jeff Horgan, who's a writer for the herald at the time uh and charles steinberg were kind of putting this together and they came in this hey you're a music fan do you want to come in the studio we've got this band that's putting together a song i don't know if they knew what they were going to do with it at the end when, when it was all said and done and we went in and and uh recorded you know some vocals i think it was the chorus yeah and uh, here, close to 20 years later, they're playing it after all these Red Sox wins. And I have to, I have to tell my kids every time they hear the song, like, Daddy's on that, you know, <laughs> Daddy's singing on that song. Can't really hear me. But uh, yeah, it was a good time. So baseball for me has opened so many different doors. And like I said, it's like rock and roll fantasy camp for me to be able to kind of mingle with, with different musicians and talk to them and, and, and kind of pick their brains and whatnot. And it's... Uh, it's I've been <laughs> been very lucky in my life to be able to be not only be a baseball player, but kind of rub elbows with kind of my, my childhood heroes, you know, growing up. Now that's really super cool. And, and I appreciate you um, shared a, a video with me about uh, that, the song Tessie and how that came about. I didn't know any of the backstory to that's really interesting. Uh, Cause yeah, it goes back, you know, to, you know, Precurse, if if I can use that word, um, yeah. <laughs> for the Red Sox, and then uh, you know with that song coinciding with the the 2004 World Series, really cool story, really neat video. You're you're in it, um, so I'll link to that for sure. People should check it out. It's really interesting and entertaining. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was it was one of those things where I had no idea what I was getting into, but it, someone said, "Do you want to go in a recording studio?" And I jumped. I'm like, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> People ask me all the time, would you go, would you rather go to a, a, a baseball game or a concert? And I really feel like going to a concert is, is I would pick that. I don't know if it's because I've been to hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of baseball games, but I feel like a concert's my wheelhouse as far as just having entertainment value. Have you been uh, going to any, any shows of late? Uh, not lately, not lately. And COVID kind of put a damper on that, on that. Uh, yeah. I played the hot stove concert, uh, Johnny Resnick 
the Google Dolls played that one. He's very generous with his time and energy to help raise money for, for, for those in need. Uh, I saw back in the day, I saw the Pixies four or five times, who were one of my, another one of my favorite bands. And my walkout tune from the bullpen to the mound was Where Is My Mind uh, when I was in Boston and in Oakland pitching. So it was, it was kind of cool to meet those guys too. Uh, through baseball, just opened up the avenue. You know, do you want to meet Frank Black, <laughs> Joey Santiago, wow. Kim Deal, and uh, David Lovering? Just incredible. That is amazing. Wow. Well, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's great that you've gotten to meet so many uh, really awesome musicians. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, I guess it's, it's living the dream, right? You know, baseball and music, uh, getting to experience both sides of that. It really is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> except, except I would change one thing. I, I would change one thing. I would pick up the guitar at nine rather than 22 years old. I would, I would absolutely go back and pick up the guitar earlier. So my chops would be a little bit better. That's it. <laughs> you know, I, I mentioned learning the drums. I'm 57. I started a year and a half ago. So uh, 55, I think when I started, um, it's a mixed bag, you know, cause I, I get something very different out of it now than I would have at, you know, 12 or 18 or, or 24, but yeah, I hear you. I hear you. The body, you know, body definitely doesn't do everything I wish it would do uh, and, and on the drums. I can tell you when I, when I picked up the guitar in the minor league in spring training of what was it? 2002. There was one thing I noticed. I I'm a left-hand thrower and I play right-handed. So I noticed after a few weeks of actually trying to get these chords down the dexterity, the flexibility, the calluses grew on my throwing hand. And prior to that, I, I've said this before in, in different interviews, but prior to learning the guitar, when I threw a baseball, it just felt like a hand throwing the ball. Afterwards, I could kind of distinguish the difference between each finger. I could put pressure on this finger when I couldn't before. It made my cut fastball better because my middle finger, really getting that G chord there, made it a little stronger. <laughs> and, uh, and, and my cut fastball took off after that spring training of learning the, learning the guitar, partially because of, like I said, the flexibility, the strength, but the calluses grew. All my fingers had, had these little lines in them from playing guitar. So mm -hmm. I definitely contribute to the fact that I was learning that at the same time. I feel like my career kind of took off right after that baseball-wise. That is fascinating. Really fascinating. Uh, do we have a, is there anything that we can be looking forward to? We can of course see you on, on Nesson uh, on, on any given night, uh, but in terms of uh, maybe gigs coming up or anything baseball related that uh, we should be looking out for. No, I mean, uh, like you said, I'll be in new England sports network, uh, 10, 12 days a month talking Red Sox pregame, postgame show. Um, as far as music, uh, I know the Lemonheads are coming, I want to say December to Boston. They typically end up their tour in his hometown of Boston. So I'm looking forward to possibly getting to that unless I have something really important coming going on. That's the only way I'd miss it. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't really have any other shows coming up that are, uh, but I always, I always look ahead and I'll put it in my calendar. So there might be something coming up that I just forgot about that I put in six months ago, but I get a check every so often. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, then uh, let people know where they can follow you. So if you happen to remember something like that and you share it on social, people can find it. So um, you're on both uh, Twitter and Instagram on Twitter at Denardo Lenny. And on Instagram, I love this uh, at Denardo LHP, left-handed pitcher. Uh, anywhere else that people could or should be following you. That's about it. I, I, I really enjoy Instagram because if I, if I feel inclined to learn a song, I'll typically learn it that day or the day before then put a little clip up on Instagram just to kind of uh, for me to look at and say, okay, that does kind of sound like that tune. So I put it on Instagram just to kind of, all right, here's what I learned, but it's also for me to look back and say, okay, that kind of sounds similar to what I was trying to sound like, you know, cause when you're playing it, sometimes it sounds great, but then when you play it back, you're like, oh, that's no, that's nowhere near what I was trying to sound like. It doesn't sound like the song at all, but uh, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of different clips uh, ranging from all different bands, anything I'm trying to learn at that time. Once I learn it, I'll put it up on Instagram and, uh, and just to kind of, you know, remember as well. Like, so if I forget how to play things, I can always go back and say, okay, this is, this is, this is how I played that. So let's revisit. Yeah. What a, 
What a great idea. That's fantastic. Uh, all right. Well, uh, you can uh, follow me and you can follow the show. My main account on Twitter is uh, at Al Melchior BB and the BB does signify baseball. So it's it's mostly baseball, but some music stuff. If you just want to follow the show, just get right to the music stuff um, on Twitter at Yumi Album and also on Instagram at Yumi Album. And if you want to know what the album is a few days ahead of time, so maybe you can give it a listen before you listen to us. Uh, those are the places to follow. So you can find out again, a few days in advance, who the guest is going to be and what album they're going to share. Um, so Lenny DiNardo, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to come here and share an album with us. And uh, I, like I said, absolutely love this album and can't wait to uh, dig in a little bit more to the Lemonheads. Hey, I appreciate you happy. And like I said, if you ever want me to come on again, I'm more than willing. I had a blast and I'm always looking forward to talking music and baseball and whatnot. And uh, this has been great. Right. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, you're going back in the spreadsheet again. <laughs> the future future invitees. I really appreciate that, Lenny. And, and I good. really appreciate you all out there uh, listening and um, uh, give, giving us uh, some time to, uh, to hear us talk about music. So thanks again so much. I'll be back again in a week's time with another guest and another album. So until then, everybody, please do be safe, take care out there, and listen to some great music. <laughs>